book of Acts chapter 4. Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together. And uh, we've looked in a kind of an overview fashion at Acts chapter 4, but we're going back and looking at some specifics that we passed over earlier that we feel are pretty significant for our lives as Christians. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you flag them and they'll get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible's a gift from the Lord to you um, today. Also want to make you aware that uh, this evening, all of us have probably shocked on the same level of events in Paris that late this last week, and it just never stops. And um, uh, whether it's in Africa or Asia or the United States or Europe and uh, the gashes, this is a great evil that's occurred. And uh, Jesus said concerning the devil that he only comes to steal and to rob and to destroy and, and uh, to, to murder. And uh, so... This is a, a great crime and a great sin, not only against human beings, but against mankind as a whole, but also against God. And this evening is a part of our prayer meeting, our regular Sunday night prayer meeting before the Sunday evening service, um, 5.15 to 5.45. We'll give the bulk of that time uh, to praying for Paris, the events there, and interceding uh, as God's people in this world on behalf of uh, not only Paris, but the whole world that's been impacted by the events. And we'll pray together in just a moment as well. Acts chapter 4, and we'll look at a single verse, verse 12, but we'll pick things up in verse 7. And when they, that is the religious leaders, had set them, that is Peter and John, in the midst, they asked, by what power, by what name have you done this? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's very significant, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if this day, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And now for our purposes this morning. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven that is on the face of the earth given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the access that you give us to your throne in prayer. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus that has given us that access uniquely as Christians. And we thank you that he has, in and of himself, turned that throne of yours into a place where you dispense unfailingly, both grace and mercy to us. And Lord, we thank you also that you hear the prayers that we can never, ever put into words, the prayers that well up in our hearts and in our spirit that just become groanings that can't even be uttered. And you know how to look at our hearts and read the prayer that is there and then to answer those prayers. 
And Lord, we have done some considerable groaning as your people since these events began to unfold and on Friday. And we pray, Lord, that in your greatness and in your power, in your love, Lord, and in your wisdom, your compassion, that you would just brood over that city of Paris right now and all of the wounds that are there, not merely physical, but now mental and emotional, all that they have been through, things that you never intended a single human being to even know about, much less to experience. We pray for these families, Lord, that have lost loved ones for simply going out for a bite to eat or to do something, and, and then here now they're gone. And you are the God of all comfort, and we ask that you would minister to them and that you would comfort them, Lord, as their creator and hopefully, Lord, as, as their heavenly Father. And we pray, too, for those that have been wounded, and so many have been wounded, that you would bless them with healing. And we pray, Lord, that you just overwhelm that city with yourself and the world as a whole. The whole world has been violated in this, this great evil. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak, and you're the only one that can take such a thing and work it together for good, and we ask that you do that. And we pray that you cause the whole world to ask, where does evil like this come from? Why are we the way that we are? Why is the world the way that it is? To ask the big questions in life that are all around us all day, every day, but we fail to ask unless something jars us into it. And Lord, as people begin to consider life and what's important in life and what does life mean, we pray that even in that secular society of, of Paris and of France, that you would break through where no one else can break through by your Holy Spirit and speak to people, speak to their hearts and to their minds of yourself, Lord, and the hope and the meaning and the purpose the salvation that is found in you, and draw them, Lord, into your family and into the greatness and the fullness of your arms. And we ask, Lord, this morning that you would bless us as we continue to study this book of Acts, not merely to know the book, though we are thankful to do that, but for you to continue to fashion our Christianity into a Christianity that can take the rough and tumble of this world that we live in. And we ask for a work of your Holy Spirit to continue to fashion that in us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The context of this majestic confession of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12 is this. The healing of a lame man at the beautiful gate at the temple in Jerusalem at the time of afternoon prayer. God uses the apostle Peter and John to take notice of this man. The Holy Spirit through Peter then brings healing to this man's feet and to his ankles. He's been lame from his mother's womb and immediately he is healed. He begins to dance, and he begins to jump, and he begins to clutch and put a death grip upon Peter and upon John, recognizing that somehow this had come in some way from them. 
An entire mass of people are flowing in huge numbers through all the various gates onto the Temple Mount to go to afternoon prayers before the evening begins to uh, settle upon Jerusalem. And as they see this man that they've walked past for almost 40 years, who they've only seen in a position of sitting and begging, now in the condition that he's in, they realize a great miracle has occurred. And by the thousands, the multiplied thousands, they surround Peter and John, and Peter realizes immediately that as wonderful as the healing of the man's lame ankles and feet were, that wasn't the single supreme great thing that was, or the only thing that God was up to in all of this. Peter realized that uh, God wanted him to preach the gospel now, that this miracle had been used by God to establish a crowd before him. And so Peter preached the gospel to them, calling on them to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for the receiving of everlasting life. And far from being offended by this Christian message offered by the apostle Peter there, 5,000 deeply religious men put their faith in Jesus as the Christ right on the spot. And for preaching the resurrection of Jesus, Peter and John were arrested on the spot by the Jewish religious leaders uh, and authorities associated with the temple. They were held in custody overnight and then brought the following day before the highest Jewish religious leaders within the land to give an explanation for the healing of the lame man. And in the course of Peter's explanation, he declared to these religious leaders that not only was Jesus the explanation for this man's healing, but that further, Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's an astonishing thing that he does, really. Peter could have entered into kind of a self-preservation mode and simply told them that a resurrected and living Jesus was responsible for the miracle and then proceeded to keep his mouth shut. But they then took the extra step of declaring to this very religious audience, number one, that they needed to be saved, and number two, that Jesus, the one that they had uh, been a part of his crucifixion, was the only way by which to be saved. I'd like us to begin our examination of chap, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, by noting the final four words of the verse, the words, we must be saved. The word saved and the word salvation, which is also found in the verse, it speaks of danger. It speaks of urgency. We have to be careful as we read the Bible, and those that are new to the Bible, those that have been around the Bible for a long time, it's so often it's so easy for words like saved, words like salvation, word like Savior. There's a, 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 the deadly familiarity that we begin with these terms, and they lose their power. They lose their emphasis and impact that they're intended to have upon our lives. And the word salvation and the word saved speaks of the danger that every single human being is in until they are ultimately saved. And it speaks thus of the urgency with which every single person ought to respond to God's offer of salvation. Words like salvation and saved are intended to communicate danger. We apply those words to people who are in great danger, some kind of a life-threatening situation that they need to be rescued from. 
We save people from burning cars. We save people from burning buildings. We save people from drowning. We save people from bleeding to death. And when the Bible uses words like salvation and Savior, it doesn't do so just for effect, but in order to communicate to us how dangerous our condition is apart from faith in Christ and in order to provoke a needed urgency within our hearts concerning our own salvation so that the thinking person will not put off their salvation, not for another day, not for another hour, not for another minute. Now, these words also communicate to us that in the eyes of God, as God looks upon each of us as people, that in the eyes of God, man is in need of saving. And, of course, that then raises the question, what do we need to be saved from? And the answer to that question is we need to be saved from our sins. And the Bible teaches that each and every one of us is sinners, that each and every one of us has violated the standard of God's law. We have violated His commandments. We have violated His definitions of right and wrong. And that each of us has been less than perfect in our actions, in our speech, in our motives, and in our thoughts, and we have been for the entirety of our lives. The book of Romans puts it this way, Paul writing in chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again in Romans 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And who could argue with God's assessment that each and every one of us is, has, is a sinner, that each and every one of us is less than perfect, each and every one of us has been a lifelong violator of the Word of God, the commandments of God, uh, God's definitions of right and wrong. Now, that's the bad news that we're sinners, but it isn't the really bad news. The really bad news is that the Bible also teaches that there is a penalty that must be paid for our sin. And what is that penalty? Paul writes of it again in writing to the Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned as we've seen. And then the consequence, there's consequences to sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin has separated us from a relationship with God, the relationship with God that we were created to have. Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. These are the consequences. This is the penalty that must be paid for our sin. And the Bible teaches that sin is a really, really, really big deal. And it's a big deal in part because of the judgment that it requires from God. There are many, many consequences to sin, but the greatest consequence has to do with our eternal destinations, that if we do not trust in Jesus in heaven's Savior, then we will die in our sins and we will spend eternity in what Jesus himself describes as an everlasting lake of fire where nothing dies, not even a worm, where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. The universe that we live in isn't, God's, isn't man's universe. It's God's universe. The world that we live in does not belong to man. It belongs to God. And just as there are penalties for breaking 
the laws in a city or in a state or in a nation, there is a penalty in this universe for breaking God's law. And just as those who break man's laws are punished for their crimes, so too there's a punishment for those who break God's laws. Because God is perfectly holy and just, every violation of his law, that is sin, must be punished. And if God did not punish those who break his laws, if he just casually overlooked sin or tolerated sin or accepted sin, then he would not be holy and he would not be just. And just as you and I would never want to live in a city or in a nation that, number one, did not have laws, and number two, did not enforce those laws, what is true of a city and a state and a nation is also true of the universe. God has laws, and he enforces them, and he would not be just or loving or holy if he didn't. Now, if you were to ask me what I think are the two greatest things that keep people in our culture from accepting Jesus as their Savior immediately upon hearing God's offer of salvation to them, after a love for sin or a love for darkness, I would say, number one, first, it is a failure to understand or accept the fact that we are sinners by heaven's definition and to, a failure to understand our need for salvation. But second, and I think this is the bigger of the two, there is the unwillingness to take the seriousness of sin seriously within our culture. Even if you can get a person to understand that they are sinner, a sinner, there is this great tendency within our culture to view that as no big deal. After all, everybody's a sinner, so why make such a big deal out of it? So rather than seeing sin and my own sin and the sin of the world as something that is communicating to me that something is very, very wrong and broken and fallen about mankind, our culture then just chooses to accept it as normal and acceptable. I run into very few people who will not admit that they are sinners when they understand God's definition of sin and sinners. The far harder thing is to get people to view their condition as serious, to take the seriousness of sin seriously. But God takes it very, very seriously, and so should we. Now, in our modern culture, I think there are at least four spiritual anathemas that uh, we exist around. And the four are first, the anathema of telling people that they're sinners. Second, telling people that they're responsible before God for their sin. Third, that there is a judgment associated with sin. And fourth, that there is only one way of salvation. And yet, despite these anathemas within our culture, Jesus spoke of all of these things without hesitation and without apology. And so did the apostles. The apostle Peter does it here. The apostle Paul did it throughout the epistles. And we see Peter, when he speaks, and he declares this concerning Jesus in verse 12, that he speaks filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the witness, the word of the Holy Spirit, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Jesus declared in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, singular, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. As he finished off his Sermon on the Mount, he declared, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction there, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The Apostle Paul wrote in this regard to Timothy in his first epistle, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And why in the face of so much um, distaste of so many people toward these truths, why in the world would Jesus speak them as a part of his public ministry? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire Peter to speak the way that he speaks here and Paul to write uh, uh, concerning the exclusivity of Christ and the way that he did throughout the epistles? Why in the world is this in the Bible? Because it's the truth. And the truth is still the truth whether anyone chooses to believe it or not. I think about how wildly popular Jesus would be. He's already wildly popular as a religious leader in the world. But if, if he hadn't said some of the things that he said about him being the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me, and, and, and statements like that, you could take all of the religious leaders in the world, roll them all together, and if Jesus hadn't said some of the things that he had said, if he had just kept his you know, mouth silent concerning those things, the whole world would love him as a religious leader, and yet he didn't. He said those things knowing full well what they would do in the hearts of some, some people. And yet, he uh, spoke and declared that salvation was narrow and only found in him. Now, the culture that we live in is an insane culture <laughs> in this regard. The phrase, I think, has given way to I feel in the last generation or so. You hear it all the time, people determining what is true, not based upon thinking, but upon feeling. When I was a younger person, when I was growing up, um, that's all, almost all you would ever hear anybody speak about. You'd ask them their opinion about something or their perspective on something, and they would say, well, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think. Hardly anybody says that anymore. The culture we live in now, everybody says, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. Just stop in, in the next few days and just listen to that. Watch interviews on TV. People are asked pointed questions, and the answer isn't I think. The answer is I feel. Truth is being processed, not logically or intellectually. Positions that people are making in life, decisions that are being made are not coming out of logic or out of uh, rationale, but they're coming out of emotion. They're coming out of feeling. It's a dominant shift that's occurred within our culture. And it's so great that, as Ravi Zacharias famously put it, how do you connect, speaking about the current generation, how do you connect with a generation that hears with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? And if the phrase, I think, is become being rare by the day in our culture, the phrase, I know, 
is becoming as rare as an albino robin. In our culture today, it is acceptable to always be searching. It is acceptable to be ever searching for the meaning and the purpose of life. People will accept that. But it is not acceptable to claim to have found the answer to the meaning and purpose of life, the questions of life. But as you might expect, heaven isn't infected with this uncertainty at all, and thankfully so. I think I'd like to continue here this morning by asking ourselves, since Jesus is the only way, and as Peter declares here, that there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, then what in the world uniquely qualifies Jesus to save us? If he is uniquely qualified and only one qualified to save us, then why does he qualify for that? I'd like to give you a handful of reasons. First of all, he's uniquely qualified to save us and that he alone was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. You might think to yourself, well, why does that matter? Only as the Holy Spirit takes the place of the human father in Jesus' conception can it be true that the one conceived is both fully God and fully man. And Christ, the Savior of the world, must be fully God and fully man in order to atone for sin. He must be divine in order to be sinless. We'll discuss more of that in a moment. But he must also be fully man in order to die. And in order for both of those things to be true, he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a human virgin. And no one else in history of the world is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin mother. And as a result, Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Which brings us to our second point, which deals with it more fully. Jesus alone is God incarnate, that is, God in human flesh. He is both the Son of God and God the Son. He is divine. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And why is that important? As the French theologian Anselm argued in the 11th century, our Savior must be fully man in order to take the place of man and die in their stead. And he must be fully God in order for the value of his sacrificial payment to satisfy the demands of our infinitely holy God. Man must be, but a man he must be, but a mere man simply could not make this infinite payment for sin. But no one else in the history of the world is both fully God and fully man. Therefore, Jesus alone qualifies to be Savior. Third, Jesus alone lived a sinless life in all of human history. And his sinless life testifies powerfully, undeniably, of his claim to be divine, to be God. Sometimes people struggle a little bit over why it's necessary to believe Jesus is divine or to recognize him as being God, as God in human flesh in order for us to be forgiven of our sins. People will wonder, and it's a good thing to wonder. Maybe you have wondered it. They wonder, why isn't it enough that I believe in him to be a good person, I believe in him to be a great teacher, I believe in him to be a great example, 
Isn't it enough that I believe in him on that level? And the answer is no, because if that's all that he was, our sin problem would remain unresolved. Because one who is merely a good person or a great teacher or a great example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. It is because Jesus is divine that he's also sinless. And the sinlessness of Jesus is essential to our salvation because the sinner cannot be the Savior of sinners. He would need a Savior himself in the same way that a drowning man cannot save another drowning person. It is his sinlessness that qualified Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so people, some of them don't like Jesus' claim to deity. They reject him on that basis. But if you take that away, you are left with a Savior who cannot save anyone. It is no mistake that Jesus came into the world exactly as he did, that he is exactly as he is described in in the Bible, and that he was exactly who and what he declared himself to be. No one else in the history of the world has lived a totally sinless life. Therefore, Jesus alone is qualified to be Savior. Jesus alone allows a perfectly holy God to save sinners and yet somehow remain righteous or just in doing so. And the reason that our forgiveness, our salvation, our entrance into heaven as a sinful descendant of Adam and Eve can occur through faith in Jesus is that only his perfect sinless life given for us on the cross could pay the price for sin that a holy God demands. God faced an incredible problem in in coming up with a way, so to speak, of saving you and I. He faced a real problem in providing us with the forgiveness of our sins. And the problem that he faced in the words of the Bible is how could he remain just and still be the justifier of sinful man? He desires to save us. He desires to justify us. But if he simply says, oh, sin is no big deal, let's just forget about it, he could do that. But if he did that, then he wouldn't be just. A penalty has to be paid for our sin in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. As the writer of the book of Hebrews put it, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission in the idea's remission of sin. But as we have seen, as sinners, we are disqualified from saving ourselves. And the solution, his solution to the dilemma, and there was only one solution, He was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. For it is there that because of his sinless life, he became the propitiation, the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners and still remain just 
in doing so because no one can look at the Son of God and God the Son hanging upon the cross of Calvary in human history and ever conclude as a result that God has no concern or respect for the seriousness of sin. Number five, Jesus is uniquely qualified to save us by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. His death upon the cross provided us with salvation over the penalty of our sin, but his resurrection has also provided us with a victory over death. His resurrection verified the fact that Jesus' death paid the full price for the forgiveness of our sins. During his public ministry, Jesus declared that he would provide mankind with a satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sin. He declared in Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of his crucifixion came. Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But how do we as human beings know that his sacrifice was acceptable to God, that what he said was true? And the answer to that great question is the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his Son for the forgiveness of our sins. And the resurrection of Christ is God's way of confirming to us that our faith in Jesus is well-placed. And that is wonderful, at least I think so, and I know that you do as well. Sixth, Jesus is uniquely qualified to save us by virtue of his ascension. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, that was also heaven's stamp of approval upon all that Jesus had ever done, all that Jesus had ever said while on the earth. If he had misrepresented the Father in any way, if he had taught any error, if he had been sinful in any way, then he would never have been received into heaven as he was. The resurrection of Jesus is sometimes called the Father's Amen to the sons it is finished. And that's very, very true. But perhaps even more true of the ascension. His ascension was the Father's unqualified stamp of approval upon Jesus, that he had finished everything that he had come into the world to do. The ascension was the Father's mission accomplished to Jesus, his well done to Jesus. And we could go on to speak of Jesus' unique qualifications in order to provide mankind with salvation, and we could go on speaking all the way into the evening service uh, this evening, speaking of how Jesus is uniquely qualified to save us by virtue of his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies given by God concerning the coming of Messiah so that none of us would miss him when he did enter into human history. Prophecies concerning everything from his birth to the horror of his death upon that cross to the glory of his resurrection. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. No one else possesses his qualifications. And who and what he is is a perfect match for the needs of every sinner. He is a sinner's Savior. And I think that every once in a while it's good to examine the substructure 
of Jesus, so to speak, as we've done this morning. The infrastructure of Jesus as we've done this morning. It's fun to go to Disneyland and to ride on the rides, but it is the substructure and is the infrastructure of Disneyland that makes all of those rides possible. The life of Jesus is more than miracles and teachings. There is a phenomenal, indescribable substance to him, foundation concerning him, without which his miracles and teachings would mean comparatively nothing at all. Jesus alone is uniquely qualified in human history to provide mankind with this forgiveness of sins and the salvation that we so desperately need. This passage here in verse 12 is a famous passage, and we read it and we look at it, and the bulk of what it has to say, it has to say to those who are not Christians yet, to awaken you to the danger of the condition that you're in, far more dangerous than any physical danger you will ever face in your life. The danger of not being born again, not being spiritually alive, and the potential of leaving this life and going into the life to come in that condition is the single greatest danger that an unsafe person will ever face in their life. And the importance of recognizing that in this morning, putting your trust in this Savior that is so beautiful and has such a depth that it is impossible to describe in human words, sent for you in the forgiveness of your sins. But the passage also has an application, I think, to those of us who are already Christians. And I think the application in the message is a critical one. It is fascinating to me to observe Peter's boldness in this scene before these Jewish religious leaders and to witness what I think is just a dogged unwillingness to compromise on this issue of salvation being found in Jesus alone. And Peter is unwilling to budge on this issue, not only in preaching to the thousands as he stood upon within that great multitude on the Temple Mount area, but now while he's on trial before the most powerful Jewish leaders in the world at the time. And here they are, Peter, John, and the rest of the body of Christ, this thing called Christianity. Here is this tiny religious minority at this very moment in Acts chapter 4 to say, and not only a tiny minority in Jerusalem, but a tiny minority in the whole world as a whole. And there they are as Peter is preaching in this place, and they number only slightly more than 8,000 Christians in the whole world at the time, and 5,000 of them were only born again on the day before. And they are in an extremely vulnerable place in the sense that they could have been easily snuffed out by either the religious or the secular authorities of the day. And yet Peter, as he stands in this place, he's not going to budge on this issue, whatever the cost. 
This is the truth about salvation. Whether there are a billion Christians in the world, whether there are 10 billion Christians in the world, or only five Christians in the world, salvation is still only found in one name. And today, Christianity is by far the world's largest religion, at least in the sense of counting by virtue of those who self-identify with Christianity. And the number of people in the world that do that today is estimated to be 2.2 billion adherents, nearly a third of the population of the earth. And yet, we can act as if Christianity is in some kind of danger of extinction unless we capitulate to the world, into the flesh, into the devil on the most important issue and decision that any person will make in their lifetime, and that is what they will do with the salvation that is found in Jesus alone. It seems to me that that message is doing just fine on its own. If in the course of 2,000 years, the number of those who identify themselves with Christ has gone from 8,000 to 2.2 billion. And then how many hundreds of millions have known Christ and loved him and walked with him and trusted in him in those 2,000 years in between and are now in heaven before us. It seems things are going very, very well with the message as it is. And the reason that it is is because verse 12 is the message that the Holy Spirit gives life to in people's hearts and then allows them to be born again. Don't get bogged down by the political correctness and the pseudo-tolerance of our day. It is vital that we remain faithful to this great fact concerning man's salvation. And the arrogance and the pride of man is expressing itself to such a staggering degree today. Men and women who can't even match their blouse and their skirt or their socks in the morning before they head out to the door. Every single human being, every man and every woman but a vapor, and yet so many of them emboldened to attack Jesus and the Christianity he died and rose again to establish. But all of this is going to pass. It'll pass one day. And it is our charge to remain true to Jesus' message and none more important than his message concerning salvation. There is a whole world of people who are still waiting to hear of God's offer of salvation in Jesus. And they will respond in faith when they hear it, just like we did and their entire lives and their entire eternities will be changed in an instant in time as a result. And I think that it's very, very important to remember that none of this is new or unique to our age. We tend to think that it is, but the gospel has always been an offense. It has always been an offense to man's pride and to man's arrogance and to man's self-righteousness. The Apostle Paul, who faced the scorn and rejection of both secular and religious man in staying true to the gospel, he wrote, 
of all of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, God says, and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Paul declared in, further in his letter to the church at Rome, and he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so it was 2,000 years ago, and so it is today, and so it shall always be it and it alone. There is a whole world of people out there who are being broken down on a daily basis by life. You have the entire mechanism and machinery and religious Babylon. You have spiritual Babylon. You have commercial Babylon. You have all of these Babylons that are in existence today that are working so hard to move people and nations and individuals further and further away from God. And as they're successful, and they are being very successful, the one thing that they cannot hide is the casualties that it produces among men and women while that progression is going on. We were created to walk with God. Not a one of us was created to live with, without God for a single day, much less a lifetime. And as you take a world further and further away from God, you are going to create more and more casualties among people in the world as people begin to discover that they simply cannot live the life that's being put before them away from God without becoming a casualty in one way or another. And that number of people is huge. They don't have the microphone. Isn't it interesting that how on the blogs or online, uh, 10 people can sound like a million people. Uh, ten people on a blog can seem like the whole world believes this thing, and it's just ten people. It's a relatively small number of people who have a hold of the power and have a hold of the microphone of life who are spouting the things that they are spouting. Immediately away from the microphone are the vast masses of people who don't believe what it is that's being said. They're becoming a casualty of sin, and they are waiting for the answer for how they might be forgiven of the guilt of their sin, the possibility of living a different kind of life in this life, and then having an answer for death and the hope of heaven after this life. They are there, and they are out there. 
And every day there's this whole new wave of people who come to realize no matter what the indoctrination of the age, the wisdom of man, the philosophical views of the Jews or the Greeks toward Christianity or Christ, they cannot meet their deepest needs. They've listened to all of this stuff, all of their not life, but they are crashing and burning and they're waiting for the truth and this is the truth about salvation that we are to deliver to them so that their lives can become the miracle that our lives are. And how does it happen? Perhaps you've never experienced that miracle. How does that miracle happen? By simply coming to God in a room like this or any place you want to stand on the face of the whole planet and coming to God and saying, God, I'm tired of the direction that I'm going in life. I want to change that direction. That's called repentance. I'm tired of going in the direction of sin and the direction of selfishness. It's getting me nowhere. In fact, it's destroying me. So I repent and I turn to you. And I believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on that cross for my sins. And I believe that he is this full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins. And so I put my faith in him, and I trust in him. And now I ask that you would take and fill me with your Holy Spirit and cause me to be born again with a spiritual birth that comes with putting my faith in Christ, and when a person puts their faith in Christ and turns to him and prays just a simple prayer of faith asking for forgiveness, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you're born again by the Holy Spirit, the greatest miracle that a person can experience in all of life. And then you have the immense privilege of being able to now spend your life walking in his ways and living for his purposes, and it's the greatest life that a person can live. And that's God's offer to every single human being. We're all different, aren't we? Sometimes I look at people, and sometimes I look at people, and I'm glad that they're different than I am. Most of the time, that's the case. And sometimes I look at them, and they're different, and I think it's at their loss. <laughs> you do it too. I got a lot of flaws. I'll tell you one thing that happened with me is when I got done being Mr. Smarty Pants in my own life and I hit the end of my rope and the end of my rope was not physical. I would never physically stronger, never had more material things than the day I gave my life to Christ. But up here, and in here, I couldn't go on any longer without meaning, without purpose. What in the world is this all about? God brings us to him a lot of different ways, brings us to him a lot of different ways. And when I finally hit that point in my life, I never complained over the fact that I didn't get to make one of ten choices on how to be saved. 
I was just thankful there was one way to be saved because he didn't even need to do that. But he did. And that one way to be saved that he offers to every man, woman, and child in this room and on this campus and in this city and around this world came at an enormous expense to both the Father and the Son. I think it's crazy to argue over narrow or broad or one way or many ways. All that matters is what way is true and is there a way? And if there is a way, then to run through that salvation and into the arms of our Creator and make Him then as a result our Heavenly Father and become a part of His family. It's amazing. It is jaw-dropping that He has provided us with even one way of salvation. And I think that that's a humility that better suits me as a sinner in coming to God for salvation than coming to Him with demands for all kinds of things and about things I know nothing about, even from the vantage point of earth, let alone from the vantage point of heaven. What an amazing, good, and gracious God that he looked at the mess that Adam and Eve had created in that Garden of Eden and looked at it and said, I'll clean that up, but I will have to witness my son on that cross to do it. To look at your sin, the path that each of us took right in line with Adam and Eve and giving most of us, giving some portion of our life recklessly to sin, and them saying, I'm willing to clean that up and to provide you with forgiveness even at the expense of my son. It is an amazing offer when you stop and you think about it outside of the insanity of the voices of this world that don't know what they're talking about and give it careful consideration under the weight and the warmth and the beauty and the wisdom of heaven. When a person is willing to do that, then we'll make a beeline toward that salvation. God isn't willing that any should perish. It's not his will that a single would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But he won't force you. He won't force you. Today's the day of salvation, the Bible teaches why is today the day of salvation for anyone that isn't saved? Because it's the only day that you have. You don't have tomorrow. You see that in life every day, how many people we thought they, thought they had tomorrow. They don't have tomorrow. You've got today. But if we handle salvation today in the way that it ought to be handled, we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Today's the day of salvation. And I just want you to know, if you're not a Christian yet, you are in immense 
danger. You are in more danger than me or a thousand or ten thousand people like me could put into words for you. You need to be saved. And God wants to save you today. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God this morning. And it's just that easy. God has done all of the heavy lifting here in order to make salvation a free gift to you that you receive. And then having received it, you will spend the rest of your life living in such a way is to give honor and praise and glory to the one who has been so good to you and has performed so great a miracle within your life. Come forward after the service and pray and become saved and enter into God's family today. If the worship team would come forward, let's stand together and we'll pray here for a moment and we'll close up the service. Father, what would five paths do us to forgiveness and to being made new, to having a love for sin exchanged for a love for you, to the receiving of everlasting life? If the five paths are all wrong, if they're all just the invention of men's minds, if they're all just put by the devil or by a man into the human condition just to give us the idea that we can have a choice or demand a choice on this issue or 10 choices or 100 choices. Father, we thank you for the infinitely superior thing that you have given us this morning. And that is one choice, but one that is right and one that will never disappoint, not in this life, nor in the life to come. And we stand before you, Lord, humbled by the greatness of your love that you would be willing to give your only begotten Son because he was and is the uniquely qualified Savior for sinful man and to give him in the way that you did to make the offer of salvation possible to us. Thank you for the love behind that. Thank you for the Father's heart. We worship you and we bless you in this place for how good you have been to us in doing so. And we bless you, Father, in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.